welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 24, recorded on October 22nd, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be with you again. And for the first time ever, Samsung is kicking off our news lineup this week. Indeed they are. And dare we use the word convergence? That's pretty much what we're talking about here. So a few months ago, they announced the DEX Dock, D-E-X, I think that's how you say it, which allows you to put the S8 or the S8 Plus into a dock and then have what is essentially the same as Remix OS, which is Android with a proper desktop, windowed applications, that sort of thing, which was quite interesting. But now Samsung have said that using that dock and one of their phones, you will soon be able to run proper GNU slash desktop Linux, which is suddenly much more interesting to me. And it does make the price of their higher-end phones a little more palatable if you could use it as a desktop, too. Samsung says their ideal customer here is the developer for Linux on Galaxy, as they put it. And they say they can now set up a fully functional development environment with all the advantages of a desktop setting that is accessible anytime, anywhere. And this is specifically in the Samsung announcement about it. So the only requirements are an S8 and a DeX dock. And then once they ship this future Android update, whenever that is, we don't have any details on that, they claim you'll be able to choose the distro that suits you best. Yeah, and I'll be using the Linux kernel from Android, so there'll be slightly less overhead there. To be honest, this sounds an awful lot like Maru OS to me. So it sounds like containerization of Linux, essentially, right? You'll, you'll, you'll use the same kernel, you'll share a modern Linux kernel, you'll run things not in virtualization, but more like in parallel to Android. Is that your take on it? Well, yeah, exactly like Maru does yep, already, exactly. which no one seems to talk about in these articles about this Samsung thing. Well, if Maru was worth billions of dollars like Samsung is, perhaps people will be talking about it more. I mean, the reason why this is a story is because these are mainstream consumer devices, and this is a mainstream consumer company. Well, yeah, it doesn't get much more mainstream when it comes to phones, apart from iPhones, than Samsung ones. So it's interesting to see that they are targeting developers like this, because really... It's just for normal people, the Samsung phones, right? So you'd think that there wouldn't be that much of their market would be developers. I I don't see why, unless it's kind of a longer term goal that they've got for convergence. I actually think what you're picking up on is their very problem they're trying to fix. They don't have a strong developer geeky audience. A lot of those people are probably buying iPhones or Pixels in most cases, in the States at least. Yeah, or the OnePlus phones. Yeah, yeah, one, I should also mention those. There's, there's a, there is a category of phones that are a little geekier that are being bought. I shouldn't just single out the Pixel. And I think this is Samsung's attempt to say, hey, come over here and check us out. We offer something the other guys don't. But to me, it comes across as a little tone deaf. Because any developer that's going to want to get serious work done remotely is going to have a laptop with them. It's just the keyboard, the monitor, everything all built into one device. It's kind of a long shot, and to me it seems a little tone deaf. Their, their bigger customer market is going to be probably people more like you and I who just want to have a productive workstation on the go and are not trying to write apps. We don't, we don't have some crazy high performance requirement relative to what a smartphone can offer. Well, yeah, or maybe people who just need to SSH into some servers and therefore all they need is a terminal yeah. and a keyboard. But I suppose, again, yeah, maybe they just use a laptop. So maybe there isn't a huge market for it, but I am interested in it. And I'm very interested to see how much of it's going to be open source when this comes out, because Android, the underlying system is open source, at least most of it. And 
the containerization, surely they'll be using something like LexD or LexC to do this. So you would think that they're going to have to open source at least some of it. Typically, my response to a story like this would be skeptical. And I am predominantly skeptical. But there are a few things that line up in Samsung's favor. First of all, the S8 is a well-selling device. Second of all, the DeX, the little dock that's required, is a well-reviewed functional selling device. So the main components are already in the marketplace. It's all software at this point. So it is achievable. And it may actually be achieved. When (laughs) and how much of it, like you said, is open source, that's what remains to be seen because we don't have details on any of that stuff. Yeah, and I think crucially that deck stock is affordable as well. It's about like 50, 60 bucks, something like that. So you're not having to shell out hundreds and hundreds to make this work. So I think that adoption, well, I, I'm tempted. If I had the Samsung phone in the first place, then I would be, I, it's a no brainer. I would have it. And it's making me think twice about maybe getting hold of one of these Samsung phones, but they are just so expensive. Well, consider saving your pennies, Joe, and perhaps purchase a Purism laptop. They've announced that future Librem laptops will ship with the Intel management engine disabled by default. Now, Chris, the first thing that pops into my head here is, can we hire their PR department, please, to promote JB? Because they are doing such an excellent job. Every week, they're in the news doing something that is interesting. That's actually newsworthy in itself. Uh, How many open source projects do you know of that crush it like this when it comes to the PR cycle? And because of their success, you're seeing projects that want to attach with that rising tide. So we've had the Plasma mobile folks come along, GNOME folks have made announcements, and now Nextcloud is making announcements. And when's the last time we've seen these well-established, well-known open source projects rally together like this? Oh, and I'm leaving out Matrix, uh, which is a huge component of this. There is there is a real success story here in how they're messaging and how these really large, well-known, quote-unquote, open-source brands, and I use that debug term very loosely, are coming together around this effort that Purism has, and it's it's really, it works for everyone. It, it seems to be playing to everyone's strengths. This is kind of unprecedented. Well, it feels a little bit like the early days of Ubuntu, doesn't it, where suddenly there was this buzz and excitement about getting open source to the masses and and talking about a hundred million devices or whatever it was and a bunch of fridges and okay most of that never came to pass but at the same time there was that buzz and and excitement and now ubuntu's kind of established an old hat and on its way to becoming a public company and now you've got purism coming up in the market being this exciting new freedom loving company that is just on this mission to promote software freedom and open source, although they don't call it that, it it feels like an echo of that time to me. That's definitely a positive take on it, and I hope you are right. So to break it down a little, you have uh, positive technologies in the mix here. They're the research group that really did all of the heavy lifting on breaking this management engine. And there's a bigger backstory to this, and I'm really glad that Purism is riding this wave because the bigger backstory here is Intel with Skylake, made a switch in the architecture of the management engine. And they went from some crazy ARM ARC system or whatever, I have very little understanding, to an x86-based management system using the Intel Edison chips. And that makes it significantly easier for hackers and people who want to exploit the management engine 
to find exploits because now it's x86 and all of your tools that work on the x86 chip to take apart stuff work on this management engine. So the pace has really picked up. Plus, we've just had recent vulnerabilities that Intel had to patch, which has added a lot of interest to this. But it does leave me wondering if this, is, if this success is limited to the Skylake systems right now. Because this took an unbelievable amount of engineering to trick this thing into booting in a way that allowed it to continue to boot, even though not all the components are present. And I have seen some skepticism that because it's basically a black box, that processor, that it might just be reporting that the management engine hasn't loaded hmm. when really it has. And there's basically no way to know that because it's completely proprietary. They've really done a lot of poking around. I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but this success will be unique to Skylake unless Intel has kept this management engine essentially the same between architecture improvements and updates, which is doubtful. Um, but then again, I guess now they have this head start, they might be able to keep up with the pace. But I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of generations or the next generation when Purism is offering updated laptops with new Intel chips in them, if they are unable to offer this management engine disabled initially, but then could perhaps later on offer a firmware update to their existing customers and say, we're committed to working on this, and if we, if we crack it, we'll issue you a firmware update. Because apparently the Librem 15 that I now own, which doesn't have the management engine disabled, will be receiving a firmware update that I can elect to apply, which will disable it retroactively for me. Yeah, and if you put your open source Dreamer hat on for a second and just think about Intel needs some pressure put on them by the market in order to stop selling processors that are basically full of blobs, proprietary blobs. And the only way that they're going to stop doing that is through market forces. And so you need a company who's great at marketing, like Purism, to convince people that it matters. And that's the first step in making Intel realize that it matters to the point where people care enough to maybe stop buying their products. And with the rise of ARM, you know, Intel are in a position now, okay, at the moment, they're still dominant in basically everything but embedded systems, including phones, but how long is that necessarily going to last? And unless they start taking this stuff seriously and taking privacy concerns seriously, which seem to be growing, certainly within the industry, maybe not normal people who just buy a phone and whatever, or buy a laptop and don't care about it, but the kind of people who are fitting out data centers with potentially millions of dollars worth of Intel products are starting to take note of this stuff. And if Intel don't start addressing some of those concerns, then it could ultimately be the end of them. And this is a sweet spot for purism. And uh, it's something they can really focus in on. And I would encourage them still to consider dropping pure OS. I think if you, if you were to ship a mainstream Linux distribution with hardware that now is well-built, has physical kill switches for the radios, and ships with the Intel management engine disabled, the only negative on that checklist of features now is your own homebrew OS. And if you, if you just offered a few options or just committed to one distribution of mainline distributions, it's a, it's a really compelling package and offering. But honestly, the kind of person who's going to buy this, they're going to immediately reload it with Arch or yep, whatever. 100%. So why even waste the resources and invest the time in PureOS and instead focus your energy on other efforts? Just ship it with Triscoll, maybe. <laughs> there you go. I mean, legitimately, that could work. If, if nothing else, I understand they want to have it as a differentiating aspect 
of the Librem laptops. And it may be that things like this next story play into that. Perhaps they want to ship PureOS because they want to be able to bundle things by default like NextCloud. Yeah, so we reported on this, I think a couple of weeks ago, the end-to-end encryption, which is coming to NextCloud imminently. And now Purism have partnered with NextCloud to ship it on their machines. So again, excellent PR synergy, I suppose you would say here, attach themselves to a company and project that is incredibly popular and privacy focused and seems to share a lot of the same goals as them. And so it just seems to be a very good fit for them. I agree. And there is implications of future collaboration. In the announcement on Purism's website, there's just one paragraph And partway into the paragraph, they say, additionally, Purism will be discussing with NextCloud about future Purism NAS that runs completely free software, including NextCloud and services. Yeah, just casually tossed in there, yeah. Let's just make all the things, a phone, laptops, an operating system, and a NAS. Make all of them. (laughs) Well, to be fair, a NAS is fairly straightforward. Of all of those things, a laptop, a phone, or a NAS, I know which one I'd rather build because it's the easiest. Absolutely. And really, there is a there is a legitimate market for it as more and more people have their own uh, media collections. So it's a big week for all of these projects, and it's cool to see them all working together. It's like your favorite open source friends coming together to work on a cool collaborative project. Yeah, open source supergroup almost. <laughs> so we talked about, I think, last time, didn't we? Firmware update. I never can say that. And how it was a great thing. And it turns out that they're kind of not doing that well financially. They've got a bit of support from Amazon for hosting, but they could really do with some donations to buy hardware to test stuff on. Yeah, a huge part of FW Update, as a quick reminder, it's the software project that is working with hardware manufacturers to update firmware and everything from your Intel chip to your Logitech receivers. And it is dependent on a hosting service called the Linux vendor firmware project, which is where all the stuff goes through and then gets distributed down and whatnot. And that is where the testing comes in. That's where the hosting costs come in. And while the the time for development of this project is graciously essentially donated by Red Hat, the hosting is not. And so they're reaching out to the community to try to raise funds. And they have very humble goals. They're hoping to raise enough funds to buy secondhand hardware to do testing, which is great. And I, I like keeping costs low. But to me, this is one of the most important open source desktop projects right now. And it's very important in the server space, too. But just to get that desktop first-class citizen style firmware updates, this is a really important project to me. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be looking into LibrePay because that looks like a cool, a cool site, too. And I might be considering donating that way. Yeah, ideally, they're looking for regular donations. I mean, everyone is, aren't they, really? So you've got a sustainable funding model. And even if it's only a few cents a week, they'd be happy enough with that. So yeah, do follow the link in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 24 and uh, go help them out. Now, the next story we have is one that we tend to dread a little bit, not because it's a bad story. It's just packed full of legalese and it's a little dry. But at the same time, it's a pretty big story. I think it's kind of historic. Nearly 200 Linux kernel developers and copyright holders came together. Well, and they made some news this week, Joe. Yeah, they're fed up with one of the authors of NetFilter trying to enforce the GPL for his own gain. For monetization, as they call it. Yeah. And so the key issue here is the difference between suing people for financial gain and trying to make them actually come into compliance. And compliance is a key word here. And what they mean by compliance is 
if you take the Linux kernel, you make some changes, and then you release a product that has those changes, then you need to contribute your code back. And that's all we're really interested. That's what they're saying here. We're not interested in suing you and making money from you. All we want is you to respect the license and contribute to the community as a whole. And that, on the surface of things, seems completely reasonable to me. They're calling it the kernel enforcement statement, and it adopts some termination provisions from the GPL3 and also adds some additional time, some additional quote-unquote permissions to give companies time to come into compliance before they get sued. Their aim here being to essentially reestablish confidence amongst large companies that might want to use Linux at the core of their products, that if they screw up, if they make a misstep because of some strange legal issue that to them seems foreign, they're not going to immediately be punished for it in the courts. Yeah, the idea is that you get at least 30 days to sort it out and release your code rather than just being pounced on immediately and sued and it costing you loads of money. Even if you win, it's going to cost you loads of money because you've got legal fees to pay. So they're basically putting this buffer in place, which, again, seems fair enough to me. How this is actually implemented is a bit fascinating and very geeky. It's a pull request to add a new file to the kernel's documentation directory. It adds a short document describing the views of how the Linux kernel community feels about enforcing the license of the kernel. So essentially, it's a document that they're adding to the source tree that essentially states, the majority of the copyright holders of the important parts of the kernel view the license terms as X. Just so you know, if you use this license, that's how we're viewing these provisions. Essentially, they're asserting their legal interpretation of a clause. And what was explained to me by an audience member who's a lawyer is that that has a lot of weight in legal proceedings. If you start using something where the copyright holders have been explicit about their interpretation, it, it holds a considerable amount of legal weight. Oh, no, that's interesting because obviously I have to use my favorite acronym, IANAL, I'm not a lawyer. But I thought that if it's not in the license then it wouldn't be necessarily legally binding. But if a lawyer has said that it is, then fair enough. I don't know if legally binding was the way he described it to me. It's more like you acknowledge this interpretation when you when you accepted the license. And so if you try to take them to court, you're going to have to argue while even understanding that interpretation, you still feel you're right. Okay. And there's a huge list of developers and copyright holders who have act this, as they call it, basically acknowledging and, and giving their blessing to it. And I was looking down that list. I actually did a control F for Torvalds. He's in there. If he is on board with this, then it's good enough for me. He has done a fantastic job of shepherding this project over the last 25 years. And if he thinks this is a good idea, then as far as I'm concerned, it must be. DigitalOcean.com. Create an account and apply our promo code. Here's the thing. It's all one word and you get a $10 credit. Now you can get started over DigitalOcean in less than 55 seconds and get a Linux system up on their crazy fast infrastructure. I've spun up a new rig this week. It's three cents an hour and I'm running a full Ubuntu Mate 1710 desktop environment. I'll tell you guys about it in a future episode. I love it. It has incredible speed. It's SSDs for all of the systems. And I've attached 100 gigabytes of block storage to use as my home directory. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code Here's the Thing, and you'll get a $10 credit. And while you're there, now's a great time to play around with their new object storage. They call it Spaces. You can try it free for two months. And it's, it's well done. If you're a developer or just an end user, you'll find uses for it. DigitalOcean.com, data centers all over the world, and a dashboard for days. Use our promo code, 
here's the thing. Okay, well, there's no way we could have done a show without the biggest news of the week, which is that Ubuntu 17.10 has been released. The biggest release of Ubuntu in five, six, seven years, something like that. Obviously, there's the main edition and then there's the flavors. The flavors are not massively interesting, apart from Ubuntu Mate, which no doubt we'll get back to. But let's talk a bit about this main release. It's been basically six months in the making, converting from Unity to GNOME 3. At first, some skeptical people thought that it was going to be very stock. It turns out not to be. It turns out, in my opinion, to be way better than stock GNOME. Yeah, and under the hood, under GNOME, you have kernel 4.13, glibc 2.26, GCC 7.2, and a lot of other improvements to like Bluetooth and uh, hardware-accelerated video codecs, which will have a dramatic improvement, I hope, on video playback on laptops and battery life. All those things could use a big improvement. But the big question is, do you think this is a good release? Have they made themselves proud here? I've been surprised so far. I've got it on several machines. I sort of I went through a, a a phase of just installing it on a bunch of systems, and I'm progressively getting closer and closer to more production important systems, and it's going really well. It's a it's a solid release. It really does have the heart of Ubuntu in it. It feels like an Ubuntu experience, and it still leaves room for other distributions like SUSE and Fedora, which also offer really compelling GNOME experiences. And so it really hit that sort of sweet spot where it's uniquely Ubuntu. It's definitely upstream GNOME, but I still think there's room to, to dance around a little bit in that GNOME desktop space and sort of experience the other distribution's implementations. But this is, I believe, one of the most competitive implementations of the GNOME desktop right now. So you haven't been tempted to install GNOME-session and log out and then go into a standard stock GNOME session? No, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm one of those users that... Uh, likes all of the defaults. All the stuff they've enabled in GNOME, I would just turn back on myself. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing for me is actually having a desktop that you can put icons on. I know a lot of people like to keep it clean, but I don't. That's where I store an awful lot of stuff for my sins. So that's nice to see. It's nice to see a proper minimize button. The dock on the left-hand side is very Unity-like. And so if you are a Unity refugee, then that's going to keep you happy to some extent. I never really used Unity. I tried it out many times and never liked it. I always liked it a little bit more than GNOME. And I feel that I don't think I could use a stock GNOME desktop. I would have to tweak it extensively. Whereas I could probably use this at a push. Obviously, I'm an XFCE user. And so it's XFCE or Mate for me, or even LXDE is, is, <laughs> makes me happy. So I'm probably the wrong person to judge it in terms of how it compares to stock GNOME, but I, I think it's usable. I think that they've done a good job for what it is. I still would have liked to have seen something like Mate, but at the same time, that is not quite there yet, is it, in terms of high DPI support and stuff like that? Yeah, and that's where they've really done a lot of good work, is that polishing those rough edges like high DPI and fractional scaling and the very final theme touches that they, they polished off right before they shipped make a huge difference in usability for me. Yeah, and you mentioned Bluetooth. That's something they've been concentrating on. I've tested that out now, and that is brilliant. I wish all desktop environments and all distros worked as well as that does. I've been distro hopping for about five to six months, and um, I didn't think I'd ever go back to using Ubuntu as my main desktop. But uh, as of right now, 
1710 has pulled me back, and I'm deploying different versions of 1710 on different machines for the work case. And uh, I like all the different flavors too. We should we should talk a little bit about the flavors as well because they're it's not just all about the the gnome version of Ubuntu. Uh, friend of the show Martin Wimpress and team have released Ubuntu Mate 1710, and they say it's their best release they've ever produced. Well, yeah, it is rock solid from what I have tested it and. To be honest, it was rock solid a couple of months ago at the alpha stage, and it, not much has changed since. It hasn't needed to. And you've got this mutiny layout, which has been developed even further than it was before, to the point where it is, okay, it's not quite Unity, but it's very, very close. This is a cunning strategy of the Ubuntu Mate project, because what they are essentially creating is a refugee for Unity 7 fans. They've been working on these features for multiple releases now. The HUD support isn't new to the 1710 release, it's just been nailed in the 1710 release. The super key support wasn't new to 1710, it's just works universally now regarding layout and has been nailed in 1710. So all these little things that Unity lovers are going to look for in a desktop environment have been getting slowly added to Ubuntu Mate to a point now with 1710. It's pretty much there. It's just a couple of rough edges. And I think by the 1804 release, they're going to nail it. Well, the 1804 release is key to me because I know we're supposed to be Linux Action News and it should be all about new stuff, but the statistics prove that most Ubuntu users use the LTS. So most people are still using 1604 and are watching this and testing this maybe, but probably not rolling it out in production. Yeah. And this 1710 release is almost like a beta for the 1804 one. This is the testing ground and it's kind of proof that the the standard, the main Ubuntu is ready and Ubuntu Mate, same story. It gives me great confidence that 18.04 is going to be a great release for both of them. I've heard numbers as high as 20x the amount of LTS users to the non-LTS releases. So it's a huge, huge difference. And uh, part of my reason for switching to this 17.10 release is I'm crossing my fingers and I'm hoping for a smooth upgrade to 18.04 and then I'm just going to hang there for a couple of years on all of our production equipment, and I'm going to let Wayland get itself worked out, I'm going to let Pipewire get itself worked out, and I'm just going to sit back and use an LTS on the production equipment for years. And so I'm, I'm hedging now with 1710 for 1804 to be good, and then I'll just sit back and eat popcorn for a bit. Well, you mentioned Wayland. Let's talk a little bit about that. The default session is Wayland now, which has been so in Fedora for a couple of releases, but... Fedora does not have the user numbers of Ubuntu, let's face it. So this is going to be a huge test for Wayland. You're going to have it rolled out to a lot of people testing Ubuntu 17.10. And once we get to 18.04, that's when the real test is going to come, I think. And so they have to nail it over the next six months. But in my experience of a couple of pretty standard laptops, I had zero problems. I would have not known I was on Wayland, essentially. Perfect. That's good to hear. We had we had one crash on Wes's machine that we're attributing to Wayland, but we don't know for sure. The other reality to the 1710 release is that it is truly standing on the shoulders of other giants in the community. There has been a lot of hard work by 
the Fedora Project, and others to build the GNOME Software Center, to work issues out on Wayland, to build the GNOME shell up to where it is today. That is significant, and, if, and it's kind of ironic that uh, Canonical is able now to come back to GNOME and is able to leverage that hard work. There's a certain irony to it, but at the same time, there's a certain beauty to it. Well, that's what open source is all about, isn't it? It's supposed to be, although people are competing with each other, really, everyone is in it together. This week also, believe it or not, marked the 13th birthday of Ubuntu. So happy 13th birthday, Ubuntu. <laughs> yeah, unlucky for some. <laughs> Hopefully not for them. You know, that release 13 years ago shipped with GNOME 2.8, Firefox 0.9, OpenOffice 1.12. <laughs> Yeah, and now here we are with Snaps. We haven't talked about that. Snaps feature prominently now. With Ubuntu Mate, they're actually shipping a Snap out of the box, yep. which is a bold step. Mm -hmm. And it feels like Canonical have just gone all in at this point on Snaps, to the point where when you do a search for software, you get Snaps alongside Debs with equal standing, which makes me think that they are definitely confident that Snaps are basically there which I can't agree with, really. I think that they are they're ready for testing, they're ready for some use, but I don't think that it's quite 100% there for the kind of person who is going to use Ubuntu. Mm, that's probably why they put it in Ubuntu Mate and they did it with the Pulse audio mixer, so that way... And it's, that's a command line app, it's not a very popular app, and it doesn't ship by default. I don't even know if it's in the Debian repo at this moment. So it's that's sort of a, I think, a perfect edge case because you have something that'll be really low use, but you can still ship it and test updating to it. I had a good conversation with Wimpy on Linux Unplugged about the backstory behind this move. And the backstory is really to learn what it's like to have a high load of an app and then ship updates to it as a regular thing. And they're, they're, they're seeing if it is ready or not. They're going into this with the mindset of, we might come out of this with data that tells us we're not ready. Well, yeah, which is fair enough for that, as you say, a command line app. But what I'm talking about here is if you search for software in the GUI on Ubuntu proper, you get snaps in the results. Ah. And it means that people are going to be installing them right. and they're going to be testing them. Now, I have to get this double checked. Uh, and if anybody in the audience knows, please let me know. The way I believe that works is GNOME software has a plugin architecture. And so snaps is a plugin to GNOME software and plugins by default, list higher in the search result than your distro's repo. So that's a function of GNOME software, not a modification that Ubuntu made to give preference to snaps. Yeah, but at the same time, they're still there given equal billing, and there's nothing stopping people installing them. Absolutely, and I'm sure that's what they hope. <laughs> well, yeah, they hope that people will test them. And I suppose 17.10, as I said, is basically a beta for 1804. I know there's a lot of people would strongly disagree. They spent so much time getting this ready as a release, but as you say, 20x the number of people using the LTSs. So they've got these several months now to see how it works out with people yeah. using Snaps. And and I'm going to try to follow up on that story and get the, get the data. I'm hoping that Canonical will share it with us one way or the other. I do feel like we have to give one honorable mention to the flavor I'm considering the most this release because I'm building remote desktops that are hosted on DigitalOcean. And uh, it's Ubuntu. So Ubuntu 17.10 is on my radar this release cycle. Yeah, there's not massive changes. There's a few GTK3 things. Slowly but surely, all the elements are being ported to GTK3. 
and you get the feeling that it's going to be finished right around the time GTK 4 comes out. Yeah, yeah. But let's ignore that and let's just say that it's good progress. I am sitting here using Zubuntu. I love it. Um, I've tested out 17.10 and it works almost exactly the same way that 16.04 does. And so I'm confident that 18.04 is going to be a great release and I will upgrade to it and not look back for the next couple of years. Yeah, I might try it on my X2Go systems because I'm going to be able to take advantage of all of the core new features of 1710, like the new Bluetooth and USB audio device fixes, which actually would come in handy. And I really appreciate the improvements to client-side decorations for GTK3-themed apps. That's that's just going to make things look better and more modern on the XFCE desktop. So it's it's a serious contender. I'm going to load it up on a remote session and try it out for a bit and compare it to Ubuntu Mate and other desktops and see which one works best. And they're all really compelling releases. We'll have links to this stuff in the show notes. Like Joe mentioned, linuxactionnews.com slash 24. Yeah, I hate to say it, Wimpy, but come on, Chris, come to the XFCE dark side. <laughs> well, I'll at least give it a spin, but I sure have been enjoying Ubuntu Mate right now. Okay, well, we got to cut it off there. This is probably a long one, Joe, but there's a lot going on this week, and we encourage you to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this show. Yeah, and go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And you can support the whole network on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.